limited to just this small group of people? Well, I mean, first I have to uh, revise a little bit of data we've been leaving out. So I just double-checked the Thai data, and they're now up at 5%, which is much better. Um, Thank God. Yeah, than when I last heard about it. Um, but they've got, they've got a supply problem, so they don't have enough doses. Anyways, on to your question. Um, I mean, no, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but obviously the priority is to assure – I mean, Hong Kong's – Priority is to make sure the financial markets are running and deals are being made, and that that sector is protected, and and the, that's just their signal of their. But well, we need other priority. sectors protected as well, don't we? Yes, but I mean, like in general, I don't like the entire policy. Um, you know, I, the idea that we'll have the elite bouncing around um, and we don't apply the same rule to everyone again and again. Hong Kong has entertained this theory that the the infection rate is coming from you know South Asians or poor people or you know whatever. Mm. And again, again, we have these outbreaks at the elite level. Um, so I don't really know what they're thinking about from an epidemiological perspective, um, why this would be better policy than, say, letting, you know, waiters come in on a special visa and travel around um, in terms of COVID doesn't care. OK, well, thank you very much. Sadly, we've run out of time. You heard there Pete Sweeney, Asia editor at Reuters Breaking Views, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and our international economics correspondent, Barry Woods. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's go and shoot round the Asian markets quickly. The ASX 200 in Australia up a quarter of a percent. The Nikkei 225 now in Japan is flat. The Cosby in South Korea up slightly, about a quarter of a percent. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng is going to fall about a quarter of a percent at the open this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for more Money Talk. Bank Chat's coming up in a moment with Hugh Chiverton and Steve Vines. The weather forecast for today, mainly cloudy, a few showers and isolated thunderstorms, sunny intervals during the day with a maximum temperature of around 31 degrees. Very hot tomorrow, heavy showers and thunderstorms on Friday and early Saturday and then very hot with sunny periods on Sunday. 27 degrees right now, 87% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. Malaysia has scrambled warplanes in response to 16 Chinese military transport aircraft coming close to its airspace. The Malaysian Air Force said the planes had been conducting what it called suspicious activity over the South China Sea. Here's the BBC's Will Leonardo. The Royal Malaysian Air Force said the Chinese planes flew within 110 kilometres of the coast of Sarawak State in Borneo. They said the aircraft didn't contact regional air traffic control, despite being asked several times. They described the incident as a serious threat to national sovereignty and safety because of dense air traffic nearby. The Chinese embassy in Kuala Lumpur said the planes had abided by international law. Beijing has been building up a military presence in the South China Sea, which it claims almost in its entirety. For the first time in 10 months, Britain's government has announced no new deaths from COVID-19 within 28 days of a positive test. In January this year, it was recording more than 1,800 daily deaths. Britain had previously announced zero COVID-19 fatalities on July 30 last year, but that was under a different system of counting. But experts are still concerned about the government's plan to remove all lockdown restrictions in England in three weeks' time. Danny Altman is Professor of Immunology at Imperial College London. These are very big decisions, not just about the number of excess deaths we're prepared to tolerate, but just about what will be our future relationship with this virus. These are very big choices to take, whether we're going to be a country that will almost choose politically as a matter of policy to percolate it as an endemic infection forever, or whether we're going to be one of the countries who are really going to say, no, let's really get the job fully done and try and get it out. 
A global initiative set up to find answers to the limitations of existing renewable energy sources is being relaunched. The initiative is supported by 24 countries, including the US and China. Here's the BBC's Roger Harabin. Wind and solar power are plunging in price and increasing in efficiency. But there's still the problem of what happens on an overcast, windless day when these natural resources don't produce enough energy. Mission Innovation, which was set up in parallel with the Paris Climate Change Conference in 2015, has made this conundrum its top priority. It set members, including the US, UK and China, the target of developing new energy storage and improving power grid systems to resolve the problem by 2030. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton and your co-host today is Steve Vine. Steve, good morning to you. Good morning. Today we're talking about teaching history under the national security legislation and China's three-child policy. According to guidelines released last week, Hong Kong students will now learn about Chinese history with a new emphasis on national security. The new history curriculum in secondary schools will teach students about Hong Kong's historic ties with the mainland with a focus on how different events highlight the importance of national security and will include exchanges with the mainland, quote, to cultivate students' concept of the state, national identity and sense of responsibility to our country and our people, unquote. Events like the unification of China under the Qin Emperor will be taught and according to guidelines, such lessons from history will educate students on the birth of a centralised political system and how the Great Wall promoted and protected national security and people's well-being. Uh, according to the uh, framework, the course also allows students to clearly understand that the country has been invaded by foreign powers, so that the British occupied Hong Kong. Well, what do you think about the new syllabus? Did the British occupy Hong Kong? What, if any, are the national security lessons from history? Let us know your thoughts. You can leave comments on our Facebook page, Backchat and RTHK Radio 3. You can email backchat at, RT, backchat at rthk.hk. We'll do our best to read out your messages. Uh, or call us on 233-88266, 233-88266. After 9.15, we're going to be discussing the three-child policy. China now allowing married couples to have up to three children. What effect is that going to have? We're going to be talking to uh, uh, Paul Yip, uh, Professor of uh, Population, uh, Population Health from uh, University of Hong Kong, later in the programme. Once again, our email is backchat at rthk.hk. Joining us for our first topic, we have with us now John Carroll, who's Professor in the Department of History and Associate Dean of the Faculty of Arts at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, Mervyn Chung, who's uh, Chairman of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Group. Mervyn, do you want to put your headphones on and then you can... Oh, yes, yeah, there we go. And uh, Edward Vickers, who's Professor of Comparative Literature at Kyushu University. Uh, John Carroll, let's uh, start with you. Uh, we'll do it in alphabetical order. Um, thanks very much indeed for, for, for joining us. So, um, thanks for having me. The, the, the idea is that, uh, you know, that national security education is kind of permanent permeates uh, all areas of, uh, of education, from biology to economics and, and, and Chinese history being a, a kind of case, uh, one of the parts of that. Uh, and these are the new guidelines on, on how uh, national security education, I say, is going to be included into Chinese history. What are your thoughts on, on the plan and how, it's, and how it might work? Well, first of all, thank you for having me back. Um, I think there are... Th- 
four or five interesting themes here, at least according to the two recent circulars that the EDB sent out last week. One of them is uh, it's an overt link between education. Professor Carroll, education. Professor Carroll, yes. sorry, could you just yes. speak? Can you speak a little closer to maybe to the to the phone or my, or whatever, so we can catch your words better? Yes. Hi. Can you hear me better now? That's good. Yeah. Can I? Okay. Go ahead, great. Sorry. sorry about that. So I think that there are several interesting themes here, according to the two circulars that the EDB sent out last week. One is that uh, the new program, the new curriculum, will overtly link education, and not just history education, with national security. Uh, both of the, the, the curricula, the history curricula and the Chinese curriculum, plan to teach the importance of national security from a historical perspective. Uh, one of the other features is that they both situate Hong Kong within both Chinese history and the history, or you might call it the world history curricula. And for, for various reasons, the, the two histories have been separate in, in the Hong Kong school system. Previously, Hong Kong was actually in the world history curriculum, but now it's going to also be in the Chinese history curriculum. And as you mentioned, Hugh, one of the other themes is that uh, Hong Kong was invaded by foreign powers and occupied by the British. This is in both curricula, or at least in both circulars. Uh, but also both curricula aim to uh, help students become responsible st- citizens and globally-minded Chinese, this is one of the terms that's used, cultivating, quote, positive values. And again, um, I think, uh, sorry, you hinted at this earlier, Hugh, but they, they both stress that Hong Kong has been Chinese territory since ancient times. Uh, okay, and what do you make of those changes? Well, I think uh, that the idea of education in almost any society is to keep kids off the proverbial streets, keep them out of trouble. In this case, the curricula, both curricula are designed literally to keep kids off the street and to prevent something like 2019 happening again. Oh, oh I was just going to say, I just wonder if we could just ask Mervyn Chung, what, what is your understanding of an emphasis on national security? What does that actually mean? Well, um, now all along to, uh, this aspect uh, of learning has been uh, practically non-existent in, 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 in the school curriculum, both uh, upper secondary and junior secondary. And uh, I think most probably because of the recent happenings, uh, both uh, in, in and outside of Hong Kong, um, the Education Bureau has come to some kind of awakening to the necessity of, of introducing this kind of uh, uh, concepts and knowledge. Um, to to um, different subjects that are over in, in, in the schools. So um, I think that uh, some basic understanding um, to be imparted to, uh, to the student body, um, I think is useful. Because uh, basically, uh, after 1997, um, Ch- uh, China has resumed sovereignty over Hong Kong. And the, uh, the question of territorial integrity, sovereignty, and uh, uh, and recently uh, security uh, has been much emphasized. So um, I think uh, this is some kind of a linkage uh, between uh, school education and and the realities. So what does it actually mean? I mean, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. You're, 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 you're saying this is an important subject, but you're studying history. You're, you're, you're studying, I don't know, geography. What does it mean to have an emphasis on national security? Now, my, my interpretation is that uh, for, say, uh, for history, uh, when you come to some, uh, some kind of uh, 
conflicts or, or especially uh, when when China's uh, wars at war uh, with uh, with with uh, overseas powers, the question of national security certainly would would come in, into play. So uh, this should be. But isn't that all history? Uh, I mean, why is this some peculiarly Chinese thing? I mean, all history is every state in the, on the planet has concerns over national security. That's what governments spend a lot of time doing. But in the uh, in the curriculum framework, uh, well, what has been mentioned is, is uh, I think it's that's all. That is uh, uh, the, the example given is that uh, China and therefore Hong Kong uh, was invaded previously by the foreign powers. So it's, it's a kind of uh, quite uh, uh, exceptional circumstances. And on the question, uh, you know, in the subject of the geography... Sorry, did you say that? Hmm? It was, it's exceptional for China to have been invaded. I'm trying to think of any country on earth that hasn't been invaded. Uh, invaded, that is... Uh, no, yes, uh, invaded. And then uh, the question of uh, uh, national security, well, uh, needs to be stressed. So uh, I think uh, that's, the, um, that's probably... Uh, uh, uppermost in the minds of the curriculum planners. So on the subject of geography, uh, say the boundaries of, uh, you know, of, of China, the political boundaries of China, plus some uh, aut autonomous uh, you know, regions like uh, uh, Xinjiang, etc. So this constitutes the issue of territorial integrity. So I think uh, students need to be taught you know, about these uh, essentials in the related subjects. And of course, when you talk about, uh, say, uh, whether law should be percolating and uh, penetrate all subjects and in, uh, you know, on all topics, I think that's, that's something, that's something to, uh, that, that we need to discuss. Do, Professor Carroll, can I just go back to you? I mean, you, you know, you, you sort of outlined some of the some of these changes. What, what perhaps uh, seems a little bit new uh, is um, the, is the I guess the sort of uh, didactic uh, intention that the you know we are supposed to learn these lessons from history and to be able to to apply them and understandings uh, things like uh, or, you know just in general uh, you know the, the role of uh, central state and so on in people's well being and and things like this and to apply them um, to the situation now. Is that new or was that always there or how would you read that? I wouldn't say it's entirely new, but certainly the terminology that's being used, uh, reminding people to become, uh, to become you know, loyal Chinese citizens. They don't use the word loyal, actually, necessarily throughout. I mean, this, this is quite a, these are two reasonably lengthy, lengthy documents, but I think the connection between education and nation building is much more pronounced in, in these new proposals. Yeah. Uh, uh, is that, uh, you know, w would that work? Is that at odds with the tradition of, of uh, education in Hong Kong? Well, I'm not sure if it's so much at odds with uh, the education in Hong Kong. And, uh, and Edward Vickers has, has, on, has written quite a bit about history education in Hong Kong, much more than, than I know. Um, but I do think it's important to keep in mind that history education, formal education, is not the only place students get their history, right? They have parents, they have grandparents. So... History education is only one of the, the various ways that they will learn about Hong Kong history and about Chinese history. Mm. All right, yeah, as you mentioned, Professor Vickers is with us as a professor of comparative education at Kyushu University. Professor Vickers, uh, good morning to you. Many thanks for, for, for joining us today. Uh, what, what do you make yeah, of the, the, these uh, changes? I know you've written about history education, Chinese history education in, in Hong Kong uh, for, for many years. Uh, this must be something of a sea change? 
Yeah, well, it's definitely a step change. Uh, I mean, as, as John Carroll has said, um, the national education agenda uh, and its application to history and a range of other subjects is not exactly new, but we're seeing it now being significantly ramped up. Um, and uh, what's interesting for me is I've, I've recently been looking at uh, the current uh, curriculum for history and for a subject called morals and rule of law in mainland China. And some of the language that we see in these recent uh, curriculum documents for history, for Chinese history, um, and for other areas in Hong Kong, is very reminiscent of that language. Um, so I notice in the new guidelines for applying national security messages uh, through um, history and Chinese history, repeated use of the phrase outstanding traditional Chinese culture. Uh, and this is something that is now appearing again and again in uh, school curricula and propaganda in mainland China, uh, which is, um, as, as many people in Hong Kong, I think, may reflect that this is somewhat ironic, uh, given that for many, many years, Hong Kong, and specifically the, the, the subjects of Chinese history and Chinese language and literature in the Hong Kong school curriculum, were felt by um, educators in Hong Kong to be sort of preserving traditional Chinese culture against the threat of um, uh, its, its sort of eradication uh, by uh, Maoist radicals in the mainland. Uh, and now we have um, uh, the current administration in Hong Kong telling Hong Kong people that um, they're not learning enough about traditional Chinese culture and that therefore this needs to be uh, uh, sort of um, intensified through these subjects. Professor Vickers, I mean, you, you, you mentioned you've been, I know you haven't just recently been looking at the mainland uh, curriculum, but an outstanding feature of it, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there is a correct version of history and an incorrect version of history. Do you think that... Well, yes. Do you, yes. I, I'm just that, saying... That, sorry. Yeah. Uh, the, so the question would be, do you think that this form of thinking is going to be impl uh, employed under the new curriculum which will operate in Hong Kong? Well, it would certainly seem so. It seems so. Now, I mean, John Carroll's already pointed out that in Hong Kong you have two history subjects. You have history or general history, world history, uh, and you have the separate subject of Chinese history. Now, the sort of ethos of those two subjects has always been rather different. And in Chinese history... Um, there's always been uh, a sense that the purpose of the subject is to um, convey a sort of correct or authorised version of the national past uh, to students. And this is going back, you know, way beyond, way before 1997. It's always been like that. Uh, whereas in the history or general history, world history subject, um, there was increasingly from certainly from the 1970s, a drive to um, uh, portray the main purpose of that subject or a main purpose of that subject as the cultivation of critical and analytical skills. So um, curriculum developers um, and advisors to the Education Bureau on history education would always emphasize that you know, history was all about teaching 
students to think for themselves and um, uh, analyze based on evidence, not about forcing uh, um, verdicts down students' throats. Uh, but so there seems to be a, a sort of fundamental conflict between, or contradiction between the aims that are now um, uh, mandated for the history subject and the, um, the, the sort of established ethos of that subject, uh, at least in theory. I, I, it'd be interesting to have Mervyn Jung's um, take on this. I mean, do you think there is such a thing as a correct version of history or, or, or one authorised version of history? And should it be taught in schools? Uh, I think um, there should be uh, a proper version of history in the sense that um, only facts and uh, accurate information should be given to start with. And then on top of that, you can develop different interpretations and analysis and the problem that has happened um, to our uh, to, to to our teaching in uh, you know in, in in a small number of schools is that uh, some teachers seemed to have deliberately distorted <coughs> historical facts and then to input their own uh, their personal wills, which are biased and and, and are quite distorted uh, in the teaching. Uh, you know, to the students. So that that's the problem. Could, could you give an example of that? I'm, I'm not clear what you're talking uh, about. One one teacher who has been deregistered, who has been deregistered by the Education Bureau, by the Education Bureau has a has a you know such as uh, an office drawback, which has been proved by the Education Bureau through uh, a, a, you know a long inquiry process. Uh, that is about the opium war, and uh, the teacher taught the students that. The Opium War was fought because Britain wanted to um, help the Chinese people to 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 remove their you know their drug addic- uh, their drug addiction habit. I think that's something. That's, that's it. That's the other way around. Can, can well, I just can I just say that that isn't strictly speaking what happened. What actually happened was that he presented that as one of the arguments that was advanced alongside other ones. It's strange that you pick out just one, one of the aspects of that particular teacher's teaching. Uh, if it is at the, uh, the high level of study, like uh, at the post-secondary level uh, of education, the lecturer or the professor uh, concerned might throw such a question for general discussion by, by, the, uh, you know, by the class. But the mistake so made by the teacher happened if I remember correctly, in just a, 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 a primary four or five a, a school class. So I think um, to... Uh, oh, so the problem is the age of the students, not the fact that he was having a discussion. Yeah, whether or not they have the, the kind of uh, in, uh, intellectual maturity to understand you know, uh, this kind of uh, thought-provoking stuff uh, that, that, uh, that, that is uh, you know, served to them. Okay, one focus for this is, is the question of... Uh, of uh, the uh, British presence uh, in in uh, Hong Kong, uh, occupation or session. This is a subject of an email from Bowen. I'd like to share. 
Um, Bowen says, presumably the significance of whether the British merely occupied Hong Kong Island and the Caribbean Peninsula from 1841 and 1860, or whether these territories were ceded by China to the UK under the two relevant treaties, is that mere occupation would not have transferred territorial title, but session would have. It's true that the Education Bureau's Guide to the History Curriculum for Secondary Schools states that after the Opium War, Britain occupied Hong Kong, unquote. But while it's still on that topic, it simultaneously requires students to be taught about how the British established colonial rule in Hong Kong and the imparting to students of the skill of tracing the historical development. Achieving these objectives necessitates mentioning the Treaty of Nanking and the First Convention of Peking, both of which triggered session. Beijing would dispute the validity of these treaties, of course. Under the doctrine of intertemporal law, the validity of a claim to a disputed territory has to be examined according to the prevailing international law at the time the relevant events occurred. But its continued existence depends on the following the evolution of the law. The corollary is that any territorial title validly acquired by the UK over Hong Kong and Kowloon in the 19th century was susceptible to challenge in the second half of the 20th century. Such a reversal of fortune could, however, itself be challenged if there was an established order of things in the territories. In short, both the UK and China would have had their own legal points to argue if they had not reached an agreement. The SAR government may say that although the guide says that Britain occupied Hong Kong, it did not say there was not also session. It is therefore still possible and arguably necessary for them to mention to students the treaties and their effects in the 19th century without seeking to pretend that there is a settled view about the merits of the competing legal claims of China and the UK in or about 1997. That is from Bowen. Thank you very much indeed. John, John, John Carroll, should they teach that the British occupied Hong Kong? I think they should teach that the, the British occupied Hong Kong and they colonized Hong Kong. There's no problem with using the two, um, you know, sort of switching back and forth every now and then. I think the problem, and I think Bowen has really hit it on the nail here in many ways, is given how the, tree, the, the curriculum later then goes on to talk about the various unequal treaties, it really can't talk about these unequal treaties without talking about the word colonial, colonialism or colonization. And should it talk about session? Should it say that uh, China ceded the, those lands to to the UK? Yes, yes. It, they should definitely include the word session, ceded. Yeah. So occupy and session. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, Professor Vickers, what's your take on no. that? Well, this the point that Bowen has raised reminds me of debates that have gone on in Taiwan over this very very similar sort of terminological issue. Is it correct to talk, for example, about the Japanese rule over Taiwan as, as an occupation? So do we have to use the term occupation to talk about Japanese rule over Taiwan? Or do we just use the term Japanese rule? Now, the current regime in Taiwan prefers to talk about Japanese rule, Qing rule, Dutch rule. It's all rule, Kuomintang rule. Whereas the Kuomintang insisted that, uh, yeah, the Kuomintang ruled Taiwan, but the Japanese occupied it, the Qing ruled it, the Dutch occupied it. Now, um, I think it's worth thinking a little bit more about the comparison between uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong when it comes to history education and the attempt to use it to instill Chinese patriotism. Because uh, Taiwan presents us with an example of a society that was subjected to 40 years of very intensive national education by the Chinese Nationalist Party. Um, and what was the effect of that? Well, I mean, uh, I think many might argue that it was to do precisely the opposite of what the Guomindang intended. Um, so, you know, 
a lot of Taiwanese people have been alienated uh, from China and from uh, the idea of identifying with the Chinese nation. Now, there are many reasons for that, but I, I, I think um, we should not presume that the effect of uh, similar measures in Hong Kong will necessarily be any different. Mervyn? Um, yeah, sorry, yeah. go on. Sorry. Well, well, and one more thing to say yeah. about that relates to tri trips to the mainland. Um, and if we look at Hong Kong and Taiwan, and if we look at the emergence of a strong sense of distinctive local identity in both places since the 1980s, um, that coincides with the opening up of the mainland and with increased opportunities to travel there. And what travel to the mainland has often done for Hong Kongers and for Taiwanese is to show them how different their societies are from the mainland uh, and thereby reinforce the sense of local identity. Uh, and so, again, will trips to the mainland do what the authorities hope they will do or will they uh, be counterproductive from the point of view of, of Beijing or, or the local Hong Kong authorities? Okay, there's a lot of kind of implications to that which we'll, we'll follow up uh, after the news at nine. We're going to take a break uh, in, in just a moment. Uh, drop us a line, join the discussion, 233-88266 or email backchat at rthk.hk. I'll check the Facebook as well during the news. Uh, an announcement from the uh, Transport Department because of road subsidence. Uh, the slow lane of Chung, uh, Chunwan Road uh, towards Kowloon near Liking Estate closed to traffic. Uh, there's a traffic, uh, big traffic queue there. That's uh, the slow lane of Chunwan Road uh, near Liking Estate uh, towards Kowloon uh, is uh, closed to traffic uh, congestion there. Uh, watch out for that. Uh, one email from Vic I can squeeze in who says, Dear Backchat, history is written in the names of the winners of wars and survivors of history. It's always been jaundiced by their views. Think of the Nazis prevailing and the history they would have written. That comes uh, from Vic. Once again, our email backchat at rthk.hk Also going to be talking about the three-child policy uh, in the mainland. Uh, want to hear your thoughts. The weather, before the news, mainly cloudy. A few showers and some isolated thunderstorms around. Sunny intervals forecast during the day with the temperatures up to about 31 degrees. And the outlook, very hot tomorrow. And then heavy showers and thunderstorms on Friday and early on Saturday. Very hot with sunny periods forecast on Sunday. And the latest readings, 27 Celsius. Relative humidity is now at 86%. <laughs> Welcome back, back chat this uh, Wednesday morning with Steve Vines and me, Hugh Chiverson. We're, te we're talking about uh, teaching history, history education in secondary schools uh, under the new guidelines, uh, uh, which uh, incorporate uh, national security issues into the teaching of uh, Chinese history uh, in Hong Kong. We're thinking that over uh, with uh, Professor Edward Vickers, uh, Professor of Comparative Education at Kyushu University, Mervyn Chung, who's Chairman of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Group, and Professor John Carroll from the Department uh, Department of History and Associate Dean of the Faculty of Arts at the University of Hong Kong. Later, we're going to be talking about the uh, three-child policy uh, on the uh, mainland uh, with Professor Paul Yip. We want to hear your thoughts as well. Backchat at rthk.hk. Um, a lot of emails uh, on this topic. Um, let's see. Uh, Jim says, uh, this is Jim H, says the territory of China has been repeatedly violated over history by Europeans. China has not invaded any nation for territorial conquest. In the 21st century, China is determined to ensure that its security is never violated again. That's from uh, Jim H. 
Uh, TC on Facebook says, I hope the new history curriculum covers the following areas in national security and territorial integrity. One, in the 1860 Treaty of Aigun, the Qing government ceded area north of the Amur River, east of the Asuri River to Russia. PRC government confirmed these losses in treaties signed with Russia in the 2000s. So not all foreign intervention of China are created equal. Two, the Communist Party of China undermined the Republic of China's national security by establishing a Soviet regime in Jiangxi. Mao Zedong also advocated the independence of Hunan. TC also says the idea that the Great Wall promoted and protected national security is at best a myth. If it functioned properly, the Qing dynasty would never have existed. Uh, and uh, Simon says the number one lesson from history is that all dynasties fall and change, even within NSL implements such as the Great Wall or Great Firewall. No matter how the CCP try and hold on to power, they will fail. The only questions are how quickly that will happen and how much they will make the great people, great Chinese people, suffer in their desperate attempts to cling to power. I strongly suspect we will find out before 2047. Not that that date is relevant anymore. That is from Simon. Uh, Alan says, teaching children about national security, question mark, territorial integrity. Okay, in a military college, but in a primary school. I expect a core of mainland-born administrators and perhaps teachers will be imported to make sure we all follow the line. Does anyone else feel we are seeing the enactment of the film Ten Years, with the uniformed children sent to attack shopkeepers who sell local eggs? And as Xi's Maoist revival continues, now Hong Kongers are to be taught to hate all the opium-dealing guilos. Yes, truly Hong Kong world city. That is uh, from Alan. And... Uh, Let's see if there's anything else that's uh, on this topic. Okay, James uh, says, uh, how is it young students have a comprehension of national security law basically being told to obey, and yet officials decided liberal studies was too mature for students? History was history, or it used to be. China was invaded foreign powers. Tell me, what is China now doing in the South China Sea, the Pacific, and Africa? That's uh, from James. Once again, back chat at RTHK. Dot, uh, HK. Um, Professor Vickers, just before nine o'clock, was uh, stressing that uh, um, um, sometimes the results, I guess, of uh, teaching uh, national uh, identity or uh, national security uh, uh, are unpredictable and, and trips to China may not have the desired effect. And he was saying that, you know, uh, decades of education in, uh, in uh, Taiwan, for example, seems to have only uh, led to uh, calls for Taiwanese independence. Mervyn Chung, did you want to respond to that? Oh yes. Uh, well, uh, one 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 point that that's been uh, given by uh, Professor Vickers is uh, Vickers is that um, um, there should there should be a, some kind of differentiation between uh, between the, the terms uh, occupation and rule. Uh, well, in my opinion, I think uh, they the two should uh, should have, uh, they, they 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 have gone hand in hand. Without the, the occupation of a territory, how how could you rule that? So it's only when Hong Kong was uh, ceded to Britain, Brit uh, Britain took up the territory, then it, it could start its ruling. And uh, well, I think it's only it's only natural for authorities to try to uh, encourage or even uh, push you know, uh, people to develop some kind of loyalty. Now think about the period of the Japanese rule in Hong Kong. Um, you know, a, a lot of effort you know, was made to to instill the kind of uh, loyalty 
to the uh, to, to the imperial to the imperial uh, 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 government empire uh, the, the Japanese imperial empire uh, you know, uh, in, in 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 the minds of the of the of the citizens, and also back to the colonial days uh, uh, of Hong Kong, I remember that uh, in schools. Uh, for all uh, important ceremonies, the, lesson, the British national anthem was played in. And even for Radio Hong Kong, every day uh, before the broadcast was, uh, was closed, the national British anthem was also played in. So I think um, uh, we should not fe- feel so opposing regarding this kind of uh, uh, policy or efforts by government to foster a, a strong sense of belonging, a strong sense of uh, lesser identity, uh, you know, uh, on the part of, 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 of the uh, citizenry. I suppose the question is, is not whether that should be done, but whether it should be done in a way that is monodimensional. In other words, just says your national identity can only be this. It can't be anything else. I mean, I think all states want their citizens to be proud of their country, participate in its affairs. But in pluralistic societies, they say, you know, you can do it this way, you can do it that way, it doesn't matter. This, this seems to suggest it does matter how you do it. Yeah, uh, I think uh, if, uh, when, when there's a clear sense of identity and uh, a sense of belonging on the part of the, of, of the population of a country, uh, well, I think a uh, lot of things can be settled, and then to, uh, all the all the uh, conscious efforts can be directed to to the proper development of the country, uh, giving people, uh, you know, the the rights and the freedoms to do what uh, they prefer, of course, within legal framework. So um, it is is quite uh, it's quite peculiar that all through the years. 23 years, uh, 24 years after the handover of, uh, of, of sovereignty from uh, British hands uh, to China. Uh, we, uh, the, the, younger, uh, the, the younger population in Hong Kong seems to be um, not, not too much in line with the, well, with the kind of things that uh, a government would expect uh, you know, its people to, to have. Just like a sense of belonging, uh, you know, uh, the kind of identity, and also the the, the kind of the the, the the cultural linkage to 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 the local society and also to to the motherland. And support for the Chinese Communist Party is that part of that? Uh, I think uh, there there must there must have been you know quite a lot of misunderstanding between. T- between the society in Hong Kong and also to, you know, uh, and and also the Chinese government, and if things could be put into clearer terms, and uh, with um, with a more, I think, uh, with more kind of a user friendly friendly approach or conciliatory uh, attitude. Is it really fair to say that young people don't have an association with local culture or don't have a strong link with local culture? Surely that's, that's been very pronounced. Uh, and that's, that hasn't been as a result of education. I don't think that the... Nothing in the, in the curriculum has said we must boost local Hong Kong culture, but it's happened and it's had a big influence, surely. Now that, uh, well, which, that, which goes to suggest that the, what's in the curriculum doesn't really make that much difference to, to uh, people's experience and people's, the way people identify. Now, if the, uh, the, lo- uh, the local young people are so much attached to the local culture, there, there wouldn't have been you know, uh, a, a growing emphasis 
on uh, local cultural heritage and understanding uh, local society and finding your roots, etc., etc. So I think that there's still a lot to be decided in terms of uh, our curriculum on, on, on account of... Uh, Sorry, uh, I don't understand your point. Sorry. Now, if uh, the, the uh, young people in Hong Kong are so well attached to the local culture, there wouldn't have been a growing emphasis on, uh, on a kind of uh, 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 our students understanding and uh, you know getting uh, and getting more and more uh, uh, you know uh, recognizing of the importance of a local cultural heritage and uh, so I think uh, there is a lot of room to in the area of improving so, I understand, this kind sorry, of the, sorry understanding the local cultural heritage yeah uh, because in our curriculum uh, there is now growing emphasis on our young people to give more attention, to develop more more sense of belonging and understanding of the local cultural heritage. Really, is there in, in the in the curriculum? Yeah, well, even in in, in the new curriculum, there's also the question of a uh, uh, you know uh, cultural heritage, uh, you know, both Hong Kong and and also the mainland. So I think, um, well, of course, uh, you okay. know, I, I mean, I, I'm talking about local being Hong Kong as opposed to yeah, local is this interesting word isn't it I'm talking about local as a, like Hong Kong as opposed to the mainland not China as opposed to the rest of the world mm-hmm. but I'm saying that you could say that Hong, young people in Hong Kong have a strong identification with with Hong Kong uh, no <laughs> to the exclusion of the mainland that's what a lot of disputes are about surely but that's that's not they haven't been taught that uh, yeah, I think uh, it's a quite a complicated situation. Mm. Now, in recent years, it has also been uh, you know, uh, quite critical uh, that um, the local young people have looked too much to, to the West for, for, their, you know, uh, for, for the knowledge and, uh, and also for their identification and, and those things. So it seems that the local culture, uh, the kind of heritage, is not uh, sufficiently strong and... Uh, and clear. I, t- I, t- I, I t- can't see that, Mervyn, at all, honestly. I mean, you know, the things like the preservation of historic buildings in Hong Kong, how a lot of these problems started, uh, preservation of the Queen's Pier and things like this, and even organic farms preserving the Hong Kong... And uh, pride in Cantonese. ...environment, and pride in Cantonese and things like uh, that. that. Surely that, that's a defining characteristic of, of young people uh, these days. It's a very strong identification, yeah. but with Hong Kong, but with Hong Kong culture. Uh, but that's only, you know, uh, I think the, the fierce opposition of, a, of a, a minority of the young people. You think so? Yeah, I, I, I do think so. Uh, and uh, is, oh, that, is that John Carroll... Um, Professor Carroll, did you want to? Is that you? Uh, I, I do not think that is a, a local uh, a, a minority. I do think that there is a local issue that we haven't discussed yet, and that is what happens with history textbooks in Hong Kong. Um, and that is because history textbooks in Hong Kong are run basically by a handful of publishers. And so far, some schools can actually use world history textbooks, <coughs> Chinese books, history textbooks from overseas. But now, because Hong Kong is being put into Chinese history, and Hong Kong is being put into world history. This means basically local school students will read almost only books published here in Hong Kong, and that will certainly help uh, the, the government, with, uh, the EDB, with this, this curriculum. 
I wonder if, um, uh, if j just because you happen to be based in Japan, Edward Vickers, whether you could give us a, a comparative prospectus, uh, perspective on this, because Japan, of course, is famous for its high level of nationalistic education. Uh, well, yes, uh, and yes, that is a very fair point. And um, I think one could argue that in Japan, uh, education has been quite effective in some ways in in sort of occluding or obscuring uh, sensitive or difficult aspects of the national past and promoting a, a, a quite a, in some ways quite a chauvinistic sense of pride in uh, Japaneseness, uh, uh, which is particularly evident amongst younger people. Um, but I would repeat the point that I mean, so this uh, uh, use of education and particularly history education to mould or shape a sense of national identity in, in, in the way that a particular regime might want to shape it can succeed, but it will succeed, it's more likely to succeed if it goes with the grain of lived experience and folk memory. Uh, and this, I think, is the problem in Hong Kong that, um, you know, so a previous speaker has made the point that, or, or has argued that young people in Hong Kong today are not sufficiently well acquainted with the nation, with their history, with local culture. I, I don't really buy that. And, and also, it's not for want of trying on the part of the authorities. So national education is not new in Hong Kong. Ever since 1997, and indeed arguably before that, Hong Kong has been subject to uh, national education in various forms, promoted by the local authorities um, in coordination with uh, various mainland-supporting uh, groups. And the result of that has been a generation of young Hong Kongers uh, that is more alienated from the mainland and from the Beijing government than any previous generation. And so, you know, in, in trying to use the curriculum to foster awareness of national security uh, and, in, in effect, to intensify uh, patriotic consciousness and, and, and love of uh, the Beijing regime, what the local authorities are arguably doing is doubling down on a strategy that has already been demonstrated to have failed. Okay. Well, some, some uh, emails to uh, finish off from uh, listeners. Um, let's see. Uh, Matthew says, of course, the CCP will rewrite history in Hong Kong to suit their own narrative and attempt to secure their dictatorship just as they've done in the mainland. However, they may need to think this approach through a bit in Hong Kong where people are not yet complete lemmings. For instance, Britain won Hong Kong by winning a war. This is exactly the same way CCP won mainland China for themselves 70 years ago. So if they argue Britain illegitimately occupied Hong Kong, then does it mean the CCP is now doing the same uh, in China? That's from Matthew. Uh, Jim H says, does your SAR British PRs object to Kenya identifying as Africans and not former British subjects? Um, uh, let's see, CW says, why is Hong Kong's Second World War history not taught in school? This is an important part of Hong Kong's history, especially the liberation of Hong Kong by the Allied forces. Tens of thousands died during the three-year occupation by the Japanese. And 
Charles says, hi, this is an interesting topic as New Zealand is now in the process of rewriting its history to include the original settlers of New Zealand, the Maori. They arrived in New Zealand about 600 years ago, but New Zealand history taught at schools barely touched on this. In New Zealand, the UK national anthem at one time was played over and above the New Zealand national anthem, and it wasn't until the 1970s that there was a change. That's uh, from uh, Charles. Thank you very much indeed for, for those. Uh, one more comment. This is from G. He says, How is it possible to teach one country two systems without allowing full play to discussion of what two systems means? This constitutional provision applies to the two SARs, but each has its own distinct history and culture. That is from uh, G. Thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you to our guest this morning, to uh, Mervyn Chung. Thank you very much indeed, Mervyn, who's chairman of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Group. Professor John Carroll from the University of Hong Kong, Department of History, Associate Dean of the Faculty of Arts, and Professor Edward Vickers. Uh, Professor of Comparative Education at Kyushu University uh, in Japan. Thank you all very much indeed for, for joining us. Quite a few uh, emails, some of them quite long, on uh, different topics um, before. Uh, so I'll have to um, uh, kind of uh, edit. Simon says... Um, I miss the fact that Letter to Hong Kong is another victim of the rectification of RTHK, notwithstanding the fact that it has become mainly a mouthpiece for the government over the last six months. Indeed, many, most of the non-government stroke pro-CCP contributors over the last year are now in jail. Uh, Ronnie Tong... Um, used to frequent Backchat and still seems to be a regular on Chinese RTHK as well as providing three letters to Hong Kong in the last year. It would be good to have him, uh, have him as a guest and review some of the reassurances and platitudes that he made in June and October 2020. And this is not with benefit of hindsight uh, but rather with evidence that Ronnie was and is living in a parallel dream world. Wednesday or Friday with Steve Ives or Danny Gittings would be preferred and limiting Ronnie to some yes or no answers some specific questions would be advisable rather than allowing him to ramble for each and every answer he can elaborate in other parts of the program uh, and uh, he gives for examples a quote from Ronnie Tong 4th of October there are no mass arrests of dissidents um, there is no shutting down of media people continue can continue to sorry people continue to criticize the central and SAR governments uh, and so on the plenty of other questions which can be place to ask to Ronnie based solely on his three letters to Hong Kong, including common law practices, judiciary process, etc. Thanks very much, Neil. That's from uh, Simon. Um, uh, Bob says, with the question of vaccination rates now front and centre, back chat conversations are peppered with comments that would be unfair that it would be unfair to impose any restrictions on unvaccinated people because there are people who cannot, for medical reasons, be vaccinated. From my information, the likely number of such people is maybe about 1% of our population. Yet right now we have 80% who, for whatever reason, are choosing not to get vaccinated. Uh, I believe I have every right to ask about my rights to not wear a mask, not be subject to social distancing rules, not be constrained about travel as an early adopter of the vaccination. Why are my rights somehow less important Perhaps Mr. Pang, that's Tim Pang from the Society of Community Organisations, uh, would like to provide a response. Uh, and um, Vic says, uh, Dr. Eugene Chan, in a photo, president of the Association of Hong Kong Professionals, appeared on Backchat a couple of days ago. For the first time, I watched Straight Talk yesterday after Michael Chugani handed over the reins. The exchange between Eugene and Anthony made me cringe. Obviously, strict scripted it seemed they did not even get it right enough to convince the audience to swallow what they had tried to carefully package and uh sell 
And uh, Matthew says, I appreciate our program host likes to challenge guests from all perspectives. This is good. It makes back chat back chat. However, it's clear he's less comfortable with himself or the program being challenged by others. Yesterday, I pointed out that it was odd that uh, Professor Nichols more than once downplayed the importance of understanding the origin of the virus on the basis that it was unimportant because the real problem was that other countries had been too slow to respond and had been too political. How could such an expert possibly play down the importance of understanding the origin of virus which has killed more than three and a half people three and a half million people and caused immeasurable economic damage my point was met by a condescending scoff from the host and a dismissive comment that he was a a distinguished scholar and appearing on the program uh free of charge uh and a comment sorry this is uh, on okay comment from Matthew on Mervyn uh, says Mervyn is talking nonsense. Hong Kong people, young and old, have a strong sense of local and Chinese identity. It's widely recognised and understood that places like Hong Kong and Taiwan have preserved Chinese culture and tradition, while the CCP destroyed it. Uh, and Matthew says, uh, any backchat programme on June the 4th this year? Uh, yes, there will be. We will be talking about June the 4th on June the 4th uh, on this Friday. That's uh, coming up on uh, Friday. Uh, Jim H says, uh, on China's childbirth decisions, how is the number of children a PRC citizen is allowed to have relevant to backchat in Hong Kong? Why should I care? <laughs> Comes from, from Jim H. Okay, switch off now, Jim H, because we're going to be talking about the, uh, the, the, answer. Uh, the three... <laughs> The three-part child uh, policy. Uh, yeah, under this uh, 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 policy, which was uh, uh, announced um, uh, this week, a major shift from the existing limit of, of two, uh, married Chinese couples may have up to uh, three children. The, the one-child policy was scrapped in, in 2016, uh, replacing it with the, with the two-child limit. Um, the policy change, uh, says uh, Xinhua, will come with supportive measures which will be conducive to improving our country's population structure, fulfilling the country's strategy of actively coping with an ageing population. Uh, Paul Yip joins us now, a Professor of Population Health in the Department of Social Work and Social Administration. Professor Yip, good morning to you. Yes, good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Sorry for keep you waiting. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what do you make of this, uh, this change? It's quite, it's quite dramatic, isn't it? Because from two to three is a, is a big jump. Well, I think uh, they see the seriousness of this aging problem, I think, in mainland China. And so that's why I think they have to uh, promote this uh, policy. However, I think uh, what happened, uh, what we can foresee, I think this policy will not have much impact, I think, to the decline, I think, of the fertility rate in China. Why not? Well, I think you know, I mean, the most crucial problem in China is not for the people uh, who cannot achieve the, uh, to have three children, but I think the, the bottleneck is those people from no children to one child, from one child to two children, you know, because of the, uh, I think the cost of the race of family, and also I think the whole environment has been changing. So I think the small family size has been the norm of the modern society now. So it doesn't matter how much money you give to the people. I think they are not uh, going to bite the bullet. No, I mean, it is, it is now the fertility or this sort of policy, it cannot be dictated by the government anymore, no? I think, in these modern days. No? And what do you think will happen about the gender balance in China? Because, of course, during the one-child policy, there were appalling stories of, of female fetuses, uh, yes, female fetuses being destroyed, and you can see from the uh, uh, sex structure of the Chinese population that it's very unbalanced. Well, yes, we see, 
about uh, it is estimated that about uh, 20 million of the men in excess at the marriageable age. <laughs> so I think they now you either I think you uh, go to other uh, neighboring countries. I think to have international marriage. So I think you can see some of the men. I think they go to Vietnam. They go to Southeast Asian country. I think they find their partners. And others, I think um, they just um, they might not be able to find a partner. So, so I think what we need to do is, is to how to prepare, I think, for a society which uh, I think you might have single elderly or single adults, I think, living in a society. You know? And again, you don't think that the, the change of policy from two to three children will um, affect the, the gender balance? No, no, no. I think what we see, I think, yes, from two to three, it might have some it, some impact for those people who like to have a bigger family. But this proportion of the uh, population is very small. And then uh, I think the uh, gender preferences, I think, in the modern day of China, I think it's become yin, yin materials now. So now when you ask the people, I mean, they do not say, that, well, I really want to have a boy. No, I mean, it, it actually, I think the boys and girls, it really doesn't matter now. And if in Hong Kong, actually, I mean, we have seen, I think there's uh, 20% of the marriage couple, they do not want to have children anymore. So no, it's whether a boy or girl, it really doesn't matter. No? So I think it is the, how can we embrace it with these new challenges in the modern days? I think that is what we have to think about. These three child policy, I think it's just missing the target. I think if you really want to boost the fertility rate, you should work on those people who do not have children now, and then to uh, try to get them to get married, and then to move from zero to one, and then from one to two. And three is just too many, and for too many people. Would that mean, oh sorry, would that mean throwing out a bigger social security network? In other words, that the state providing more assistance to its citizens to have children supporting them, you know, paying more for education, child yes, care, yes, I think this definitely will help to remove the barriers for those people who have, who like to have more children. But what I have said before now, this small family has been the norm now. So, I mean, for instead of childness, they call child free, you know, they're free of children. So, so they like to be free, to be independent now. So I think what we need to do is to do a better preparation, I think, for the social infrastructure and then uh, ask the adult people to save enough money and then do not have to rely on the government, I think, to provide the necessary support. And I think when you go to retirement, when you do not have the children's support, you know. Okay, a comment from Marcus on Facebook, yeah, echoing what Steve was saying there. Uh, Marcus says, seeing as the one-child and two-child policies were disasters and akin to forced abortion with the OCP, why on earth does the CCP think the three-child policy will work? It's only more likely to further widen the 36 million more male-to-female gender gap as only three male offspring would be wanted, given the past results. Uh, one thing that occurs to me is why have a limit at all? Why don't they just say, have as many children as you want? Yes, yes. I think what the, what they should do, I think, is just respect the, the choice of the people. I mean, just provide a conducive environment for those of you who want to have children, and then they can have children. And then for those who do not want to have children, then you just uh, make some other alternative, you know, other preparation. I mean, I mean, there's a way to go. Whether so, so what I'm saying that to dictate having the fertility level of the population. It will not work, and it would not be practical, I think, in this modern days now. No. Okay. Well, Paul, many thanks for joining us, Chair Professor of Population Health in the Department of Social Work and Social Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, uh, 
Jim uh, H uh, says, uh, relevance to a Hong Kong SAR citizen, please. That's uh, in, in discussing the uh, three-part child policy. We, we talk about things that are happening in, in uh, the mainland, in China. That seems fairly um, uncontroversial. Uh, John says, uh, this national education... Uh, is more to force students in Hong Kong to love the motherland and hate other Western countries like Japan, USA, UK, etc. Nothing wrong with Hong Kongers loving Hong Kong and protecting Hong Kong local values. That's uh, from John. Thank you very much indeed, uh, one and all, for your uh, uh, interesting takes. Uh, uh, Steve, thank you very much indeed. Uh, leaving now with the, with the weather, it's going to be mainly cloudy with a few showers today and some isolated thunderstorms. Sunny intervals during the day, temperatures up to about 31 degrees. The outlook very hot tomorrow, then heavy showers and thunderstorms on Friday. And early Saturday, very hot with sunny periods on Sunday. 27 degrees at the moment. Relative humidity is now at 86%. No matter how fit we are, it is important to get vaccinated to prevent COVID-19. All along, we have received different vaccines to prevent infections. Vaccines will help create antibodies and memory in our immune system. When we come into contact with viruses in future, our immune system will quickly resist them. It is the simplest and most effective method to protect ourselves and others. Let's get vaccinated. 9.33, the news now with Samantha Mutler. The Secretary for Health, Sophia Chan, has backed an expert committee's decision to stop reporting deaths following a COVID jab unless there's a potential link. Professor Chan said the previous practice could be confusing and there would still be transparency as a monthly report on the vaccine's safety would still be published. Malaysia has scrambled warplanes in response to 16 Chinese military transport aircraft coming close to its airspace. The Malaysian Air Force said the planes had been conducting what it called suspicious activity over the South China Sea. And Joe Biden has become the first sitting U.S. president to visit the city of Tulsa in Oklahoma to commemorate the race massacre that took place there 100 years ago. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven. As well, oh so shy, quiet and retiring doggy council co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is really for adults, it's not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. The sight of what's happening behind the lift. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you and welcome to Wednesday here on The Morning Brew. It's a cultural day today because composer and conductor Colin Touchin is going to be with us at 10.40 for this week's classical music bit. Today we're going to celebrate the birthday of a musician who didn't really amount to a whole lot before his 40s. He was a clerk in a solicitor's spell at Mickey D's, taught himself a bit of composing and did a few amateur gigs. But when fate looked kindly upon this middle-aged composer boy did it his name by the way was edward uh, elgar yes his birthday 11:40. rtl francis philippe devar will be with us from musical tribute to the still living french music 